Alright, well, if someone asked you what the normal Christian life was like, what would you say? What defines normal for us? After all, we're all of us different from one another, with different life circumstances, different life experiences, we have different responsibilities, which in, every given, which in any given week take us in many different directions. So what's the common factor? What's the common denominator? How does our shared faith in our Lord Jesus Christ express itself out in our lives such that we could say, this, yeah, this is what's normal for a Christian believer. What's normal? Here's what I would say. I'd say it's a matter of priorities. It's a matter of priorities. We who are in Christ are servants of God. And as servants of God, we have, as our all-consuming priority, the welfare of the city of God. Our all-consuming priority is the welfare of the city of God. Our hearts are engaged for her, and our hands are busy working on her behalf. This is what the normal Christian life looks like. That's not the exceptional Christian life. For especially godly people, this is just normal. And that means that it doesn't matter if you're a vocational minister, or you're a retiree, or you're out in the workplace, or you're a mom at home with her kids, or you're a kid yourself. If you're a Christian, normal for you is that you prioritize the city of God, with your heart and with your hands. And as we walk through our passage of Scripture today, we're going to see why this is normal and what it looks like practically. Today we're beginning our study of the book of Nehemiah, so please turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, and you can find that on page 398 if you're using one of the blue Bibles in the seats in front of you. 398. And at this time, also draw your attention to the gray insert that's in your bulletin. You might find that helpful today as you follow the the sermon and as we walk through the passage. Now, while we read this first chapter, our first chapter is going to focus on how the heart of the servant of God is engaged for the city of God. The heart of God's servant is engaged for God's city. Verses 1 through 3. Start with that. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the months of Kislev in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who would survive the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Well, you know how in movies, sometimes the story skips forward in time, and then a little text flashes across the screen. Part 2, 13 years later. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. You remember that Ezra and Nehemiah was originally one book, one book in the Hebrew Bible, and Nehemiah's story is the part 2. Ezra's part 1. Nehemiah is part two. So this scene takes place about 13 years after Ezra led his group of Jews back to the promised land out of exile. Nehemiah is living in the city of Susa, which is the winter capital of the Persian Empire, when some men, including his brother Hanani with a few others, arrive in Susa from Judah. Judah's their home base. They're coming for some Unknown reason, just to visit, maybe. And we see right away Nehemiah's heart for the city of God as he inquires about her welfare. The first way this shows itself is that he is inquiring about her welfare. At least that's what I called it in the bulletin outline, but that sounds a little stiff, I think, inquiring for her welfare. Because this isn't just polite inquisitiveness. This guy is aching to hear the news about Jerusalem. He peppers them with questions. How are things going in the city? 
How's reconstruction going? What's the temple like? What shapes the wall in? How are our people faring? Tell me everything. When I imagine this conversation, I, I, I think of it going on and on and on, just like past midnight into the wee hours of the morning, with Nehemiah pouring them cup after cup after cup of tea, or whatever their equivalent of tea was, and saying, yeah, but, but what about this? And, okay, keep, keep going, I want to hear more. Until they're all yawning and bleary-eyed and go to sleep about 2.30. See, Nehemiah's affections are tied to the welfare of Jerusalem, the city that he loves but that he's never seen. He wants to know how she's doing. And why does he care about the city? Because the city represents God's purposes, God's saving purposes for his people. So Nehemiah's inquiry, his hunger to know how the city is faring, is a real tangible expression of his hunger for God's salvation to Israel to be accomplished. Now, unfortunately, the news is all bad. The news is all bad. The men report that the community of the returned exiles is in great distress, shame, and in terms of its physical condition, the city is in shambles. It's been nearly a hundred years. It's been like 93 years since the first wave of Jews returned back from exile. And the wall is still broken down. The gates are still burned. The city is still essentially in ruins. And this just breaks his heart. It just breaks his heart. So what will his broken servant's heart lead him to do next? Well, it leads him to pray. It leads him to pray for the welfare of the city. He's inquired after the welfare of the city. Now he's going to pray for the welfare of the city. Read with me the rest of chapter 1, 4 through 11. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you, day and night, for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give me success. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So with tears and prayers and fasting, Nehemiah intercedes on behalf of the city. And I want you to notice His train of thought. Notice his logic. First, he rehearses, here's who you are, Lord. Here's who you've revealed yourself to be. You are the God who keeps covenant. And Nehemiah essentially stakes the whole rest of his prayer upon God's character as a covenant-keeping God, a God who keeps promise. We've sinned. Like, he acknowledges Israel's acted very corruptly by failing to keep God's commandments, and he confesses that he and his family have been part of the problem. So, here's who God is. Here's us and our sin. Next, God, remember what you said. And he reminds the Lord of what he promised Moses back in Deuteronomy, that he would punish unfaithfulness with exile. So God's already been faithful to that part. 
to that part of the covenant. The curses of the covenant God has faithfully poured out. But there's more. If they promise, if they would repent and return to faithfulness, he also promised that he would gather Israel again, no matter how far they were scattered, and bring them back to the place that he chose for his name to dwell. And where is the place that he chose for his name to dwell? That's Jerusalem. See, God, Nehemiah cries, you promised that you would bring us, your repentant people, back to Jerusalem. And it's on that basis, the basis of your covenant promise, that I ask you to hear my prayer today. Specifically, my prayer that you give me mercy in the sight of this man. This man... What man is that? Oh, only um, Artaxerxes, ruler of Persia, greatest empire on earth. Just him, just the king who some time ago specifically commanded that the work to rebuild the city of Jerusalem be stopped. We saw that back in Ezra chapter 4. This is the king that asked, that, that commanded that Jerusalem not be built. Its walls might not be repaired until he gave the word. This is the guy. So Nehemiah needs the Lord to act. He needs the king, the the Lord to work in the king's heart because he's decided that it's his responsibility to take action in this situation. He, He can't leave Jerusalem just lying in ruins when he's in a position to do something about it. He's got to try. And he's got an idea. He's got an idea what to do. Because now, at the end of chapter 1, we get some helpful info we didn't have before. Like, Nehemiah, what are you going to do? What do you think, how do you think you're going to be able to do anything for the holy city? Anything of significance? Oh, yeah, I haven't told you yet. Right, I was cupbearer to the king. I, I kind of was decently positioned to do something here. But before we move on and consider what Nehemiah's actions are going to be, we ought to see that all of his actions are flowing from a source. They're flowing out of his heart of engagement. See, Nehemiah's heart is bound up with the things of God. His heart is bound up with the things of God. That means it's bound up with the city of God and the people of God. And their concerns are his concerns. Their sorrows are his sorrows. If she's in distress, he's in distress. That's why he inquires after her. That's why he prays so passionately for her. It's an expression of his heart. And now, as another expression of his heart, he's going to get to work for her. See, his servant hands are busy working for the welfare of the city of God. So let's read chapter 2, please. Verses 1 to 6. The servant works for the welfare of the city. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I might rebuild it. And the king said to him, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So, as we move into looking at Nehemiah's works on behalf of the city, we see first that Nehemiah advocates for Jerusalem's welfare. And he's in this unique position to do so. So he's the cupbearer. He's the one that's charged with the responsibility of not letting him maybe poison the king, right? Slip something in his cup, do him a little dirty. And he's also the one who actually 
serves him with the wine. So today, wine is before him. He has daily access to the king. And so after months of mourning and fasting and praying, he's ready to speak up when the opportunity arises. Now, in all his time serving Artaxerxes, we don't know how long he'd already been in this role. Some time, I imagine. He's never been visibly sad. Well, this makes sense. Great monarchs don't tend to want to be disturbed by the private griefs of their servants during their mealtime. Have you ever heard of a king? That like, oh, really? Let's share, all you servants. You know, I'm at dinner. You know, let, let me, let me ask, ask you how your day's going. Right? Just as it doesn't happen. But on this day, as Nehemiah serves the king's wine, Nehemiah's face reveals the sorrow that is in his heart. Enough so that Artaxerxes notices and comments on it. Hey, man, why are you so sad? Why are you sad? Well, this makes Nehemiah suddenly very terrified. Even though I think he's been waiting for this opportunity, it's still a really big deal to speak your mind freely to a man who rules half a continent. A man who can make things very, very, very bad for you in an instant if he's not happy with you. You've also got to remember that Artaxerxes is already on record as opposing the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He's the one that stopped the work. And now Nehemiah is about to ask the king to reverse himself. Well, that would be a little intimidating, I think. But he still speaks out boldly and respectfully. Let the king live forever. Why shouldn't my face be sad? When the city that I love the city where my fathers are buried, lies in ruins. This is a risky move. This is a really risky move. But Nehemiah has prayed the Lord's covenant promises. Now, of course, God could choose to fulfill those promises another way. Israel could be rebuilt using somebody else. If Artaxerxes flies into a rage and he has Nehemiah hauled off to be executed, that wouldn't mean that God would be unfaithful. But Jerusalem is in Nehemiah's heart, and God is going to use some means, he knows, to save her. Why shouldn't it be through him? So he risked it. This is the play he's got. He feels responsible responsible to make that play, and so he goes ahead and speaks. And the king says, all right, what exactly are you asking? And so what happens then? Nehemiah, again, desperately turns to the Lord in prayer. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, you can imagine that was a very short prayer. You wouldn't want to keep the Persian emperor waiting while you say, excuse me for a minute, I just got to go and pray for a little bit, and then I'll come back and answer you. No, no, no. I imagine it was something like, help! Just as an aside, isn't it interesting that we see two very different kinds of faithful prayer in this passage? We see Four months of sustained labor in prayer. And then we see a momentary flash, beseeching God for his aid. Both are appropriate. Both are needed as we are in the habit of seeking the face of our God, both sustained prayer and instantaneous prayer. Now, having prayed, Nehemiah makes his request that Artaxerxes would give him leave to go to Jerusalem in order to rebuild it. So that's out there now. What's the king going to say? Well, he says, how long are you going to be gone for? Whew! See, the Lord has answered Nehemiah's prayer. The months-long prayers and the instantaneous one, he has granted Nehemiah mercy in in, in the sight of this man. See, remember, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And King Artaxerxes' heart has just been turned, whatever way the Lord wishes, to grant this request in response to Nehemiah's prayer. Now, if I were Nehemiah, I think at this point I would have to excuse myself for a moment, go find a pillar, pillow and holler into it for about 30 seconds. But he probably had more self-control than I do. He's not done. He's got he's to stay with this for a minute. He's got some more requests to make. And now we see that Nehemiah moves to planning for the city's welfare. Read verses 7 and 8. And I said to the king, 
If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted to me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. All right, so for the last four months... Nehemiah has been fasting, he's been grieving, he's been praying, he's also been planning. He's been busy planning. So when the king agrees to send him to Jerusalem, he actually has a detailed proposal all prepared. Here's the letters I'm going to need. Here's how I plan to get the building materials that I need. Of course, I'm going to need a house. So this guy's competent. He's got it all laid out. His Gantt chart's in place. He's organized. He's really thought it through. And the the king agrees with all of his proposals. Why? Because the good hand of God is upon him. That's a phrase that's kind of unique to Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra's been said several times, the good hand of our God was upon us. Here Nehemiah says it. He'll He'll use it one more time. The good hand of my God was upon me. So with the king's letters and the king's blessing, it's now time to move out, to go from planning for the city's welfare to venturing for the city's welfare and actually get to work. So let's read, starting in verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up. And build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. All right, so Nehemiah makes the journey to Jerusalem. Notice he has an armed escort with him. The king sent soldiers with him. That's interesting, isn't it? That's the very thing Ezra had not felt free to ask. Well, don't be troubled by that. Faith looks different for different people in different circumstances sometimes. By faith... Ezra traveled traveled without escort. By faith, Nehemiah travels with one. Maybe it's also to underscore his authority as someone who's coming to be essentially the governor. So he arrives. He presents his his letters from the king to the other governors in the region. So who are these guys? We're going to see them come up again and again. Sanballat, he is the governor of Samaria in the north. So he's kind of governs the territory that used to be part of the the kingdom of Israel when the kingdom was divided. Okay, so that's Sanballat. Tobiah, Tobiah is probably the governor of Ammon to the east. And they don't like any of this one bit. These guys are not happy. They're greatly displeased that someone has come to seek the welfare of God's people. But there's nothing they can do to stop him yet, and so he proceeds on to Jerusalem. He doesn't tell anybody about his plans right away. He scopes things out in secret to start. He takes a couple of trusted men, and and he goes right around the city, right around the city one night. 
makes a survey of all the, all the damages to the wall that need to be repaired. He's got to know what they're going to deal with. And then once he's got all his facts, then Nehemiah goes and recruits the work team. He goes to the officials and he, he goes to the nobles and he said, listen, we got problems. We have problems. This city is still in ruins. It is time. It is past time. We need to build up her walls so that we can shake off the shame of the exile. Because if the wall gets built, then the surrounding nations will no longer be able to mock the Lord's people or his holy city. So he's, he's confident and he's, he's zealous for God's glory and for the glory of the holy people. So then he lays out for them all that the Lord has already done in giving him the favor of the king and how the king has given him all the authorization he needs to build. He's even going to provide all the materials. So he recruits. He's a, he's a good recruiter, Nehemiah. He recruits them to venture with him for Jerusalem. So, so make, take note of this. His passion, his energy, and his vision for God's city is contagious. And his zeal is able to kindle their hearts and stir them up. They see that God's good hand is on this man, and so they strengthen their hands, and they say, okay, we'll get to work. It's amazing how one man's bold resolve to work for the kingdom can rally others to do the same thing. But it's, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. Nehemiah and, and his crew are going to continually need to trust the Lord for the welfare of the city. Let's finish out the chapter. Verses 19 and 20. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. All right, so we've got a third unfriendly neighbor in addition to the two characters we already met. Geshem, the Arab, he's probably a governor in the province to the south. So now Nehemiah is going to be opposed by Sanballat in the north, Tobiah in the east, Geshem in the south. To the west, that's the Mediterranean Sea. That's a big comfort. So this is going to be rough. And God's servant, as he arises to seek the welfare of God's city, when that happens, you know there's going to be opposition. So these guys are are jeering. They're threatening Nehemiah with an accusation of treason. That's what he said. They say, are you rebelling against the king? Be a shame if someone told him. Someone he got to find out about that. But Nehemiah doesn't give them the time of day. He set his face to this task. They're not going to deter him. And he assures them that God will prosper his servants and they will arise and build the city. He has to trust that the Lord is not going to let opposition hinder the work. And he does, in fact, trust that. Because he's holding on to those covenant promises that he's already prayed. He's holding on to them for all they're worth. The Lord will save Jerusalem. The Lord will deliver his people. And he believes that's God's intention to use him in the process. And so he sets his hands to this work. This is quite a dude. I mean, he's a bit of a hero. And it's going to be really fun studying him through this fall. But yes, he is a hero. But here's what I don't want us to do. I don't want us to put Nehemiah up on some pedestal and decide that he's fundamentally different from us. He's a different category of believer, the heroic category. He's the hero believer. Because if we do that, number one, we'd just be wrong, because there aren't categories of believer in in God's church. Number two, we're going to miss the blessings and the conviction that ought to come for for to us from this passage. See, I want to argue that what we see in Nehemiah, given the difference in circumstances and life situation, what we see in Nehemiah is actually normal. It's just normal. Because our faith in the promises of God is the same faith that he had, 
And it ought to lead us to do the same kind of things that he did. And what we see in Nehemiah, ultimately, is that priority thing again. His all-consuming priority is the welfare of the city of God. His heart is engaged for her. His hands are busy working on her behalf. That is not heroic Christianity. That is not graduate-level Christianity. That is just plain, normal Christianity. And how do we know that? Because, not because it's of Nehemiah, We know that because Nehemiah's heart and his hands reflect the pattern that we see from his master, from our master. We see that same pattern in the hands and the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nehemiah is not the pattern. Jesus is the pattern. Nehemiah is a good copy. So he's able to turn around to us and say this morning to us, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He can do that, because he's a pretty good copy. But we're to be doing the same things. Let's consider the hands and the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. What was his heart given over to? Well, his heart always has been. It is now. It will be forever. His heart has been given over to the well-being of his city, the well-being of his people, his church, And from eternity past, his affections have always been engaged for her. He has devoted himself to seeking her welfare. So when he looked out over all the ages and he saw the pitiable condition of his people and heard their groaning and their shame and their misery, his heart was moved within him. We see a picture of that in Isaiah 59. I'm just going to quote a couple verses. When the Lord looks over the awful condition his people are in because of their sin. He says, the Lord saw it, and he was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. So then his right arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. See, the holy heart of Jesus was grieved was grieved because of our sin and misery. And he resolved that he had to act. It had to be him. He must be the Savior. And so he made a promise in that same passage, a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turned from transgression. And Jesus resolved it was up to him. He had to go to the city himself. And so he clothed himself with our frail humanity and he came down to his beloved city and his heart loved and his hands were always busy working for her. And so he prayed and he planned and he preached and he healed and he fasted and he wept and he toiled and he sweat and he bled for her. And his whole, his whole life devoted to serving her, to building her up. And then, of course, he went to the cross and finally gave his all for her and poured out his life's blood so that she could be redeemed, so that her walls could be built up. And this is our Savior. This is our pattern. The one whose heart and his hands were pierced by spear and nail so that he could serve his beloved bride. He could serve the beautiful city, the church. So Jesus is the pattern. And then he turns it around on us and he says, follow me. Follow me. Walk in the same manner as I walked. Which means that you, who are a servant and his beloved and his friend, must have the same priorities that he does. And your heart must beat for what his heart beats for. And your hands must be busy building up the thing that he's building. His glorious city, his beautiful church. That's got to be your all-consuming priority. That's got to be your all-consuming priority. The welfare of his church. 
That's how we know it's normal. Jesus gets to define normal. Jesus gets to define normal. And this is what he thinks is normal. The normal Christian life means day in and day out devoting ourselves to the welfare of his church. His church writ large and his church in its local form here at Redeeming Grace, if you're a part of Redeeming Grace. Well, how do we do that? How do we have our heart and our hands engaged? I think we'll just take some time and go down through some of Nehemiah's list. What about inquiring as to the church's welfare? Let me give you a thought. What if in every conversation that you and I had with one another, we were in some way asking about how we're doing spiritually? Instead of of talking about any number of things which might be fine but are relatively trivial, what if we spent time asking one another about how we're doing spiritually? That we weren't just bouncing around like billiard balls in here with, hi, how are you? I'm doing fine. But we actually sought to inquire about one another's well-being. If the things of God and how we're getting along under them were actually the topic of our conversation. Now, the flip side of that is that when a brother or sister asks you, how are you doing? You have to trust that they're actually interested in your spiritual well-being, which means you should give a truthful and significant answer rather than, fine, how are you? That doesn't mean that there aren't any such things as social conventionalities. But we're talking to one another. What are we talking to one another about? Is it about your soul and my soul and how we're going to get one another to heaven? That's, That's what it needs to be about. Are we spurring each other on in godliness under the beautiful grace of God? What about prayer? Prayer for the church's welfare. What occupies the time you spend in prayer? We won't even talk about how much time are we spending in prayer. What occupies the time we do spend? Is it primarily spent asking the Lord about things pertaining to this world? Or is it about the priorities of Christ's kingdom? Your growth in grace. Your fight against sin. Others' growth in grace and their fight against sin. The gospel advancing through your efforts and through others' efforts. What do you share when your home group leader asks for prayer requests? I appeal to you. Please try this. You have home group either in two days or in four days. That is plenty of time. That is plenty of time. Can I ask you, take some of that time to think. And when your home group gets ready to pray this week, have a request ready that concerns you and God's kingdom and eternal things. Have something that interfaces between your faith and Christ's kingdom. And pray about that. And even if you're hesitant to share, even if you're an unbeliever, be bold, venture out, ask. Ask for prayer so that they can pray for things that pertain to your salvation and you can pertain to Pray for things pertaining to their salvation and bless God's people that way. Pray on behalf for the welfare of the city of God. What about advocating for the church's welfare? It's easy to bust on the church. It's easy to bust on the church, isn't it? It's easy to bust on other believers. But when you hear someone with their speech speaking ill of the church of Jesus Christ or of our local church, Redeeming Grace, if you gently push back and you say, you know, we're not perfect, right? We're not perfect. Jesus still has a lot of work to do on us, doesn't he? But we're still the apple of his eye. He still loves us very much, and we're on our way. We're works in progress, but we're in progress. What about when someone comes to you with something negative and grumbly about a brother or sister? How could you advocate? Well, you could advocate for the welfare of the church. You can be a peacemaker. You can say, well, it seems like you have a bit of a bee in your bonnet. I think you ought to go and discuss this with that person. 
and you make sure that the walls of Jerusalem don't get a breach in them? Are we advocating for the city? What about planning and venturing for the church's welfare? What, what role does planning have? I suggest that we tend to think that godliness is something we don't need to plan for, probably because it's God's work. So we don't need to plan or make a plan for godliness. That's just not true. That's just not true. We see Nehemiah acting very intentionally, working, making a plan and working in plan in order for the city to be built up and to be blessed. So let me ask you, are you, are you planning for you to be built up as one of the living stones in God's house? Are you planning for how you're going to grow in godliness? Are, are you thinking about ways that God can help you move forward and how your brothers and sisters can help you move forward? And are you planning that? Are you planning to make men's prayer instead of just making it happen if the alarm goes off? Are you making plans and are you working plans? What about plans for intake of God's word? Plans to decide that you're going you're gonna, to you know, set aside some time and do on mission. I'm not saying these things because there are stuff and it's so great. Just, just make a plan. Make a plan to see the intake of God's word in order that you can be transformed. Make a plan to get to home group. Make a plan to, to be involved with the things that build your soul up and build the souls of your brothers and sisters up. Be intentional. Plan, uh, what did my dad used to say? Plan the work and work the plan. And that, that applies to godliness. It applies to evangelism. It applies for evangelism. You know, you, you may think that someone's just going to come up to you at some point this week and say, uh, excuse me, do you know how, how I can get eternal life? I don't know that that's going to happen. Or, please, sir, can you tell me the reason for the hope that's in you? Do it with meekness and fear. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I hasn't, hasn't happened to me all that much. But I've got neighbors on either side of me and across the street. And, and I've got to decide intentionally to work at those relationships so that we can build into those relationships, not so that we can have you know, nice conversations over the fence, but that hopefully we can engage them with the word of life. So we have to plan these things. We have to, what about planning even for big gospel initiatives? I mean, we've got some pretty cool ideas as a church, right? We want to see a church planted or revitalized because we helped do it somewhere in northern Vermont, northern New York, somewhere in this area. We desire to see that happen. We desire to start a pastoral internship so that we can train someone to send them out to start or revitalize a church. Those are pretty big deals. They're going to take some cash. They're going to take some time. They're going to take some investment. So what's our, what's our mind? Well, well, number one, BJ and I and the elders need to be working that plan very carefully. But then what happens, what happens when it gets into your hands? Is that something that excites you? Or is, and, and actually you get excited about the thought of the sacrifices it's going to entail in order that the kingdom of Christ might be built up in our area and in our region? Or is that something that you're just, you know, you're going to really nitpick and make sure that you point out every single one of the possible problems and all these things? I mean, are, are we a team that's going to work together for big gospel initiatives, attempting great things for God and expecting great things for God from God? as I think C.T. Studd said. We need a plan. We actually need a plan for our own hearts, for the hearts of our brothers and sisters, for the world. And venture great things for him. Finally, we need to trust God for the church's welfare. We can be confident, brothers and sisters, we can be confident that Jesus Christ is building the city. And it doesn't matter what kind of opposition that we're going to experience. He is building his church. He is rebuilding her walls. He is putting down opposition to his rule. 
And like BJ said a few weeks ago, we don't know if we're going to be in a time of sowing or in a time of reaping. We don't know if we're in a time of, of ease or a time of hardship in sharing the gospel and in ministering and proclaiming the gospel. But we do know that Jesus is on the march here and around the world. Are we confident and trusting him for that? All right, so those are a whole bunch of specifics. A whole bunch of specifics. You might, I trust, find a couple of those and say, ah, God might be fingering this in my life. But let's just step back for a second and think about the overall mindset that we need to have. I think about it like a wheel. Like a big wheel that represents our life. And that wheel has, what do all wheels have? They have a hub in the center, and they have a bunch of spokes around the outside. And all the spokes turn around what? Around that hub. And here's my question for you. If that wheel is your life, if that wheel is your life, think about all the spokes. Think about all the spokes that go off of, of your life. Well, there's, there's work. That's a big spoke. If you're married, there's marriage. If you've got kids, there's kids. If you've got grandkids, there's grandkids. If you've got kids in activities, there's a whole bunch of spokes like that. Take a whole bunch of time. You've got vacations. You've got other family responsibilities to extended family. You've got hunting. You've got boats. You've got all sorts of other leisure time activities going around the wheel twice now, I realize. There's all these things which are spokes around the hub of your life. Now, it's it's pretty easy for any one of those spokes to displace any one of the other spokes at any given time, right? You know, hunting can take out the soccer game, or soccer game can take out the hunting, or whatever. All those things, all those things can be displaced by one another. But nothing can displace the hub. Now what, for the Christian believer, is the hub to be? The hub around which all of the rest of the spokes of our lives rotate and revolve is supposed to be God's church. It's supposed to be God's church. It's, the church is not a spoke on the wheel. The church is the hub around which the city of God, the people of God, the church of God, is around which everything in your life needs to be revolving around. Because that's where the gospel, which is the hope of the world. If you have, as your life, and as as you manage your family and your household, if the church is one of the spokes on the wheel, and something else is at the hub, then something else will always be able to displace the church. And that's a very dangerous situation to be in. Because suddenly, suddenly a family obligation can displace service to the church. Or hunting can displace church. Or the sports activity can displace church. And I'm not just talking about the Sunday morning gathering, although that's, I, I, I beg you to prioritize that. But it means that your service to Christ's kingdom is displaceable. And that's desperately dangerous. No, brothers and sisters, the hub is where the church is. That's where Nehemiah, that's where Christ's hub. In fact, the hub needs to be this big, and there needs to be a whole bunch of little little spokes by comparison, rotating around this big, massive mama hub, which is the church. So take stock and inventory of your life. Where, what is your hub? And is church that hub, or are you trying to operate as if the church is one of the spokes in a wheel that's kind of on the same level as motorcycles? Well, what about you who are non-Christians, who are sitting here among God's people this morning and hearing his word, but you're not yet following Christ? Well, first of all, let me just say that we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. There is a word to you from God today from Nehemiah 1 and 2. It's a sobering word, but it actually offers real hope. The reality is that as the servant of God spends his time and his energy building the city of God, everyone's building something with their lives, and that includes you. 
Now, you're not building the city of God. You're building something. If you're not working on building God's city, then what are you, in fact, building? Well, it's a rival city with self as the foundation of it. You're building, in fact, a tower of Babel, I would say. With self as the foundation. Come, you say, let me build myself a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let me make a name for myself. Now, you might not be as brash as to say that. No, you you think you just want a, a cozy little lake house or a deer camp of Babel. Not a, you don't need a tower. Just a deer camp of Babel. But you and your agenda and your welfare is at the foundation of that. And it can't last. It won't last. All such building projects, and you know what yours is, all such building projects are finally going to fail. Because Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. On the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. Think about what your heart loves, non-Christian. Think about what your hands are busy with and ask the question, what is the end of these things? Is it going to last into eternity? This babble that you're building is a castle in the sand and it's going to be swept away. And you're in danger of being swept away with it. And great will be your fall. But you... Consider how all that could change in a moment. And instead of spending your life, instead you could spend your life building something glorious and lasting and eternal and something which secures your own eternal happiness. Because Jesus is inviting you to join him in his great work of building the city of God. He's actively recruiting. The help wanted sign is out and even today he's hosting a job fair. He wants you to come. So, friends, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Repent of building sandcastles with yourself as the foundation. And instead, go to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I repent of building a kingdom for myself when I ought to have been, when I ought to have been seeking your glory and your kingdom. Lord, I repent me of that. Lord, I put my trust in Jesus Christ who gave his all for me to save me, to rescue me from my sin. Go to him, give yourself to him, and let him enlist you in this wonderful building project, building the eternal city. And brothers and sisters, let our hearts be engaged and our hearts be busy for the beautiful city too. Let's think about that hymn. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer saved with his own precious blood. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, for her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Let that be us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to ask you to help us, Lord, help us to be about the business of your kingdom. Change our hearts, mold our hearts, Change what our hands are engaged in if they need to be. Lord, let us be about your business, as the Lord Jesus our Savior was. We pray in his name. Amen.